0: We are living in a very perilous time for safe legal abortion with SBA being in effect in Texas for now. We call it the Sue Thy Neighbor provision because it essentially creates bounty hunters who can sue in civil court and get up to $10,000 for every action they win against someone who provides or aids in this. So it's an outrageous law.
1: My guest today is a good one. Heather Holdridge has built a substantial career in digital politics and advocacy at places like CTSG, Care2, and Fenton Communications. For the last decade, she's been at Planned Parenthood, currently as their National Director of Digital Content and Campaigns. I spoke with Heather about how digital politics has evolved and changed over the last 20 plus years and what Planned Parenthood faces currently in the time of new anti-abortion laws in Texas and elsewhere, and a Supreme Court hostile to abortion rights. Heather is at an important place in the progressive ecosystem and a good person to talk to about how online political strategy fits into the battlefield. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Heather Holdridge at Planned Parenthood.
0: Hi, Heather. Hey, Nathaniel.
1: Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. My name is Heather Holdridge, and I am currently the uh, national director of the digital content and campaigns team uh, with Planned Parenthood. But I have been doing digital campaigns and digital issue advocacy in politics for probably about 22 years.
1: So you're just getting going. <laughs>
0: I'm starting to figure out what is this whole digital space right now. Yes. Uh, So I've been doing it a long time and obviously I've I've, uh, seen a lot. I've uh, been able to participate in a lot of incredible things and work with a lot of incredible people. One of the um, amazing things about digital is that it's constantly evolving and changing. And so I'm excited for some of the interesting ways in which uh, the space is So we're evolving and where it's taking us now.
1: Well, let's talk about that. I don't know your story, though, as much as I ought to. Uh, Where did you grow up?
0: I am from a very small town in upstate New York or western New York. This can become a very fraught political discussion for native New Yorkers. But I grew up in a town called Newark, New York, uh, which is in the Finger Lakes region.
1: Very I know the song. Yes.
0: Yes. There you go. Uh, there you go. Uh, about 10,000 people uh, from my hometown. And uh, so I grew up there. I went to college in Boston and um, then I spent some time actually out in Oregon.
1: So what kind of family is this that you grew up in?
0: So I grew up in a, in a, in a family, there, there were five of us, five, five kids, uh, plus my parents. So I guess that's seven. Uh, my older siblings were much older than I was. So I had a a very interesting experience, um, as the, the, um, first of, of two, uh, children, which was my parents. And then I had three older siblings, um, where we, we all had the same dad. The number one takeaway uh, from that interesting, uh, blended family experience was, uh, I really was into the classic rock of the late 70s because my older siblings were listening to it as they were going through their high school years when I was just a very small child. I had a really happy childhood, and my family used to travel around the Finger Lakes going camping uh, on the weekends in the summers, which was wonderful. And in the winters, we would build uh, snow forts and Sledding and skiing and doing all of those wonderful things that you do when you're from an area that has significant snows uh,
1: in, the, in the winter. Were they a political group?
0: No. Uh, well, a little bit. My parents were actually split party, which these days might not be very common. But my dad was a Republican, and which was really the dominant political party in the area that, where I grew up. And my mother is a Democrat. Um, she was political in that she served on the school board, which was a non-political role, but she served on the school board the entire time that I was growing up. It was one of my first experiences with politics, um, because the, the community that I grew up in, uh, was constantly voting down our school budgets in high school. I could very clearly see the impact of the community not adequately supporting and funding the education uh, of the kids in our community, that was my first entry, really, into the power of politics and the need to organize on behalf of your rights, your interests, and you know what the government, um, from my perspective, can and should be doing For its citizens
1: i saw that you majored in political science at tufts is that an extension of that feeling that you know that maybe politics matters or why did you pick that
0: i really always was a political junkie i was always interested in it i remember going back to when i was probably five or six i remember jimmy carter being president But I remember having conversations at the dinner table about Jimmy Carter so that my interest in politics really goes all the way back to my childhood. And yeah, I think the experience I had in my hometown, which uh, the politics of, of my community were more conservative than I personally was. And I was interested in understanding our system of government better and understanding how uh, politics and movements um, can be effective in creating change.
1: What was the first job out of college?
0: My first job out of college. Wow. I stayed in Boston. I was working for a, a small nonprofit, which is still around, Project Vote Smart. And Project Vote Smart was uh, started by a guy named Richard Kimball, who had run against John McCain, actually, in 1986. So when Barry Goldwater, retired, um, Richard was the Democratic nominee running against McCain, uh, certainly an uphill battle in 1986 in Arizona. Uh, and after that race, he started Project Vote Smart because he felt as if voters uh, did not have access to factual information about candidates running. And so it was... Project Vote Smart is an ardently nonpartisan organization, and they really seek to empower voters by giving them the information that they need. There was literally a hotline; it was a one eight hundred hotline you could call. It was the the internet barely existed back then, and so uh, there there was a hotline, and you would call it and you would ask your questions about whatever you know race you wanted information on. At the time, it was just federal races, but they eventually expanded uh, to state-level races. I was really intrigued by that ability to uh, give voters what they needed to feel confident
1: in their choices. And they're still out there, right?
0: They're still out there, yes. And of course, now they have a very sophisticated and robust uh, internet presence. I would encourage people to check it out um, when they have time.
1: What were you learning there? I looked at your career at least as represented on LinkedIn and you have this nice thing where you stay for quite a while at each job which is kind of rare these days if I were trying to hire you I'd find that very positive because you always want to find somebody who digs in and and is willing to not hop around from job to job and and you know gets invested what did you learn in 4 years helping work on vote smart
0: That's an interesting observation that you made about the nature of my career, I I think one of the things I've always valued is in just constantly being able to one contribute and you know do the role that I was hired to do and do it well, but also to continue learning and to be learning more, to be picking up more skills, to be expanding my uh, perspectives. So I when I was hired. At Project Vote Smart, I think I was like the intern, you know, coordinator, something like that. And um, eventually I got to the point where I was quote unquote running publications, which meant I was working on, uh, was it Quark? It was Quark.
1: Quark was a pub- desktop publishing yeah. app, yeah.
0: Publishing. Um, and I was working on Quark and putting together all of these uh, print products that that Planned Parenthood published
1: you mean that vote project vote smart published
0: yeah that project vote smart published yeah. so but the the broader takeaway for me it was a, it was actually a really nice first job out of college because it it uh, reflected my deep belief in the importance of civic education and civic engagement it reflected the fact that I had grown up in a split party household where I wasn't really indoctrinated into one uh, set of views or another. But also, um, the one of the takeaways coming out of there was that I did want to engage in more um, partisan, and maybe not in a Republican versus Democratic way, but certainly I wanted to be able to advocate on behalf of issues and causes that I cared about. And While I valued uh, and still value the work that civic education organizations continue to do, it's vitally important. uh, I felt that my interests were really in advocating on behalf of particular policies, outcomes and a particular, you know, worldview.
1: How did you land at CTSG, which I've never heard of, and I would never name a company either after a bunch of letters like that.
0: (laughs) Well, so this, it's very interesting. The uh, CTSG, I i moved over there. They were based in Eugene, Oregon. I was living in Oregon at the time because Project BoatSmart was actually based there. And uh, they were a new boutique startup. And the two partners uh, were these two guys, uh, one of whom I know you know well, uh, Stu Trevelyan, who currently runs NGP Van, and Dan Carroll, who is a longtime uh, political consultant, he still does a ton of work working on a lot more policy-oriented uh, things. They had really hit on something early, which was the um, emerging internet. And before I joined CTSG, they had built the first ever campaign website in 1994 for Diane Feinstein. And you know, at the time, a campaign website was not a very sophisticated place to go on the internet. In fact, well, nothing was sophisticated on the internet in 1994, Uh, but they had built the first ones. And I think that was indicative of their understanding that this new thing called the internet had potential and ways in which you could educate voters, you could engage with voters, and you could integrate that into your broader campaign work. And so I was intrigued by the work that they were doing. When I had an opportunity to, to join them, I, I I jumped at it.
1: What was that experience like?
0: Well, as with Project Vote Smart, where I started as the intern coordinator or something like that and ended up you know working on publications and all of these other pieces, I was hired as a researcher. I was doing opposition research, uh, which or campaign practitioners, that is a bread and butter element of any uh, campaign that you undertake, that whomever you're working for, you, of course, do um, a research and analysis on your own candidate, and you are doing research and analysis on the other guy or woman. And uh, And so that's what they hired me to do. I did that for about a year. And then the moment came very much by accident where I was asked to quote unquote, build a website. I was sent an email by our CTO and we were doing a campaign for the state of Washington conservation voters. And they had Bill Nye involved, Bill Nye, the science guy. (laughs) And they needed a website. was to uh, encourage people to lobby their legislature for, I think it was a clean water initiative that was happening in the state of Washington. And they sent me an email. They sent me the HTML coding for, you know, how to do a line break, how to do bolded text, how to italicize, how to do paragraphs and maybe lists, you know, like bullets, the old bullets. And they said, go build the website. Or Well, website is actually a strong word. It was a page. It was a web page. And so from there, I started assisting with building web pages. Very, very, very rudimentary. It is impossible for me to state in 2021 how rudimentary they were back in 1999.
1: That's how you become a pioneer, though.
0: That's, that's right. <laughs> it's got to start somewhere with an email from... Your boss telling you, like, here's the most basic, what is now just formatting, right, HTML, and go, go do this thing. Um, so that's how I started uh, in digital, really. But it, it shifted pretty quickly into me doing a lot of content development. And so it was content development, but the nature of our client base was very much advocacy organizations, issue education, issue advocacy, um, and this was at the dawn of and the beginning of advocacy tool sets that were starting to be built out and offered. There were a couple of organizations or, or companies that did it. CTSG was actually one of them. And so CTSG was one of the early companies that built out email clients so that you could bulk email with your supporters. Uh, CTSG was actually one of the first companies to recognize the potential power of email. And again, in 2021, that sounds uh, quaint in a way, but at the time, it really was a revolutionary idea that instead of literally printing out newsletters that you would send to your members once a month, once a quarter, whatever the, the cadence of that might be, Here was a way that you could cheaply and quickly, if you needed to, because there was a moment, reach out to your members or supporters and either just let them know what was happening or encourage them to call their member of Congress or to sign a petition and have that sent to the members of Congress to let them know where you stood on an issue.
1: It's really a revolution going on in technology applied to politics and advocacy Did it feel exciting to you?
0: Yes, it did. Very much so. I understood in a very rudimentary way because I had not personally worked on campaigns. Uh, So I didn't have that point of view. But I did appreciate that this new way that we were able to communicate with people pretty cost effectively and cheaply um, was going to change the way that people were able to connect with their members of Congress. And at the time, having, again, come from more of a civic education, civic engagement point of view and perspective. And at that point, that was my only experience. Um, so because of that, Uh, I saw what CTSG was doing uh, as very much pioneering and there really weren't a lot of other players out there. There were folks like CapWiz out there. Um, Get Active came into the scene at some point, but CTSG was only working with progressive organizations and candidates. I think they were pretty unique in that that combination of working on campaigns and advocacy work but bringing the technology that was just working with uh, the progressive side of the street.
1: So, how were Stu and Dan to work for?
0: They were wonderful. Dan uh, was a, and still is a, a mentor to me. And this was not just me. They were. They very much believed in investing in the staff and uh, helping people try new things and learn new things and grow and. Wow. They were wonderful. Stu comes out of a very strong campaign background. And I also learned a ton from both of them because they both had worked in campaigns. Dan had worked for the DNC. Actually they both uh, had done some of that work Uh, and they'd had some big wins and some big losses. So they also taught me a lot about the broader political landscape and the ways in which the progressive side of the world approached campaigns and what our opposition was doing and how do we counter that to win.
1: Did Stu show signs of the uh, future giant company builder that he was to become?
0: <laughs> I see Stu now and again and and always love catching up with Stu. I do think that he Dan was more interested in um, policy and was a brilliant political mind, but he wasn't as interested in the tools. Stu definitely had an interest in the tools, how they could be uh, built in such a way to maximize their efficacy and how we could make sure that all progressive organizations had access to them and knew how to use them effectively. Because I think Stu understood, I don't know how he, he would reflect on this, but, um, Stu under, Stu had felt the pain, the deep, deep pain of losing tough elections. And he really felt that technology was one way that our side could get a bit of a leg up on the opposition because, as you might know, Stu does not like to lose. And, um, and he really understood the power of the tools, the technology, and even at that early stage, and again, in a very different way than we would think about it today, but data, and the power of data. And if you are using it in a smart and strategic way, that that can have a, a tremendous impact on your ability to be effective.
1: So, you spent more than six years there. Tell me about how you grew during that time and how that company grew during that time. And that's happening in parallel for you, uh, an early employee in a company that grows pretty big and, and ultimately gets sold. What was your part of that story?
0: Well, when I shifted over from being a researcher into more of a digital person, I guess. Um,
1: You're still a real person. Okay. I- <laughs>
0: Daniel, I really I appreciate the affirmation. I really appreciate <laughs> um, well,
1: actually, to me, you're a digital person because I'm seeing you on a screen, but I've seen you in person.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes you do. You do know how how tall I am. How um,
1: three dimensional you are? Yes, yes three
0: dimensional <laughs> and very very small. Um, you know, CTSG really took off, and I I think it was a combination of the fact that you had smart political thinkers uh, like Dan and Stu leading the company uh, who had built this tool set out that people were interested in. And so it wasn't just that, well, you can have tools, but we actually have a team of people who can work with you to use them effectively. That combination was a really good combination and uh, the company grew dramatically in the middle of the, the time that, that I was there um, until we were sold to then Quintera um, in 2005, maybe 2004. But yeah, the the experience of the shift from a company that had one designer and, you know, one data person and a couple of researchers and into... A 30-person company within a couple of years that had different developers with different skill sets that had multiple designers that we were working with, building out websites, building out microsites for campaigns that uh, that clients might want us to do. It was a heady time, but as with many companies who grow quickly, there are inevitable growing pains and, and challenges when you go from a small outfit with, say, 10 people to 30 people to 40 people. That's a challenge for for any organization to kind of make that shift where you need more policies, processes, infrastructure, all that stuff that that is maybe not sexy, but is vital to the successful running uh, of a company.
1: How did your role change over that time?
0: I must have had four or five job titles, I think. Um, And honestly, I couldn't even remember what they all are at this point, but I went from researcher to focused on website development, but not really as a developer, more as a content strategist, content writer, uh, and to some degree an advocacy strategist, but again, very different than, than it is now. Uh, So my role shifted into that at the dawn of the video, you know, age YouTube. And at the time, Oh my gosh, Nathaniel, I can't believe you're jogging my memory in this way. Um, I remember doing some work for clients 20 years ago, and to some degree before YouTube, you would have to build into the budget the bandwidth that you were going to take up when people watched your video. So you would have to estimate, well, how many megabytes are going to be Used, consumed effectively by people watching this video, because that had a cost to it. So th- it was almost like in the old days when you would have a long distance phone bill, right? And you would get charged if you called your, you know, aunt in California, and, and if you were on the phone for more than twenty minutes, it was like you know twenty dollar caller kind of thing. Um, those were the kinds of things that we thought about, but we we actually did some really interesting and, you know, really was pioneering work, um, with video, uh, before YouTube really was a thing. We did this, uh, project for the, the D triple C, the democratic congressional campaign committee. And, uh, we called it a uh, Republican survivor, the survivor, the TV show on CBS was very popular at the time. And so we did, uh, this six part, video animated series where every week we would build and launch the episode, but the supporters would decide who would get voted off. Ah. And so then <laughs> we separate. We would give them like 24 hours to vote or something like that. And then we would, have the loser talking about how they lost and, you know, getting voted off the island or leaving or whatever they had to do. And then we would finish it up really quickly and then release that. So we, so we did that. And it was, it was really an acquisition, uh, play for the D triple C, but it sounds fun. Oh my gosh. It was most fun. It was, you know, that was the Wild West back then. You could yeah. do anything you could contemplate and figure out how to actually do, that's what you did. And so, and there we, wasn't
1: as much stuff. So, things got attention in a way that nowadays you maybe have to struggle more for.
0: Absolutely. I mean, today, you there's about a hundred different reasons <laughs> we probably wouldn't do something like that today. Um, but one of them is exactly that, that you're competing for attention and eyeballs in a way that you, you need to think differently about your content strategy than we did back then.
1: So why did you leave and go to care too?
0: Well, I'd, I'd been with CTSG for six years. Uh, I'd had a wonderful um, time there. and uh, But I felt like it was time for me to learn something new. Was it
1: post-acquisition? Yes. Yeah. So things did change a bit from what I hear.
0: Yes. Things, things changed. There was, there was new leadership who was overseeing CTSG at that time. In any merger like that, there's a little bit of a shift in the culture, no matter how much uh, you try to preserve the culture that you have built as an independent entity and company. And that was, that was definitely a factor uh, in my departure, but six years was also, I mean, your point, that's a long time in, in, in our space to be at one organization. And, uh, I had an opportunity with care Two that, to be quite frank, I didn't know how to do, but <laughs> they wanted to hire me anyway. And again, it was an opportunity for me to learn something new and to kind of dig in and
1: say what care to was or is it still around?
0: Yeah, Care2 yeah. is still yeah. around. Care2 is uh, a company that has a, I don't even know how big it is now. When I started there, they had about 5 million members. Members is not dues paying, but these are people who we had email, you know, under permission. And Care2's primary business model is to work with nonprofits to help them grow their email lists. And at the time that I joined them, that was, that was gold. I mean, that was, because that was the primary direct response channel, probably the, really the only direct response channel at the time was emails before the rise of SMS. And so I went to do business development for them, which meant that I was basically a salesperson for care too. And my job was to work with nonprofits and they wanted me to actually build the political vertical. So they didn't have a lot of explicitly political clients. And it was 2005. So they wanted me to start building out a political client base. And so that's what they hired me to do. And I did that. And there were other nonprofits and other verticals that I worked with at Care2. But one of the things that I had the flexibility and freedom to do, I had a wonderful boss, Clint O'Brien, who is still in the technology space, actually. But um, what I was also able to do there, in addition to the business development work I did to help campaigns uh, grow their lists, and we had a campaigns team that actually fulfilled those. But my job was also to help the clients use them smartly once we had successfully acquired names for them. But I also helped build out these sort of issue verticals for them going into the 2008 uh, presidential election. And so we built out a women's vertical for CARE2, and we also built out an elections channel for them. It was certainly more sophisticated than what I had done (laughs) Or uh, CTSG uh, nine years earlier, but it was exciting to have these spaces on Care2's website where uh, their members or really anybody, of course, could dig in and learn about issues related to the campaigns or um, the issues that were you know, covered under those verticals. And that was a real way for Care2 to think differently about how to not just push content out to people through the email channel, but also to bring people in a little bit more through the web. And so that was a really exciting experiment that I was able to to do there in addition to the, the business development Uh, and client facing work that I did for them.
1: That notion of sharing opted in emails and sort of trying to find ways to do email right in an ethical way and a way that works in the long run for the client and for the whole space. Do you have any thoughts about what the practices are these days across the progressive ecosystem and what they ought to be?
0: You know, it's interesting. Uh, I actually was listening to your discussion with Tatenda Musapatike uh, a couple days ago. Where I work now, Planned Parenthood, uh, is a place where we understand that our relationship with our supporters is not a transactional relationship. And it can't be. Because if it's transactional, then you lose the ability to continue communicating with them. And in fact... I might be asking you for $10 today, but tomorrow I might need your support because a terrible abortion ban has passed, which we are in the middle of a a pretty great uh, crisis right now uh, in the state of Texas. And so when I look at the ecosystem now, I do think there's a little bit of a difference in how nonprofit organizations, issue organizations run their programs from how political campaigns tend to run their programs or political committees. And the political committees, and I'm on a lot of lists, but I don't see very interesting content coming out of the more political entities.
1: There's more short-term thinking I I suspect.
0: Yes. Well, it's constantly just, you know, horrible thing happened. Give us money. Horrible thing happened. Give us money. My opponent said this, give us money. I do understand the great need for grassroots contributions. It's especially true on the Democratic side of the street. However, you're trying to build relationships with voters because it's not just contributions. You want them to vote for you. Maybe you want them to knock doors for you, but you want them to do other things. They could be like volunteering for you, organizing on your behalf, sending other content to their friends and family on your behalf. And when these direct response channels get reduced to consistently urgent appeals for money, in many cases without Context that makes it clear why it's genuinely urgent as opposed to it's the end of the month. That doesn't feel like you as the sender are treating me as someone who has an interest other than giving you money. Part of the reason I'm on your list is because I'm interested in your issue, in your campaign, and I want to be excited by that. And if the only thing I'm seeing is I need money and I need it right now, then that just feels like you're not interested in what I might want out of this engagement in this relationship.
1: It does seem like some committees and organizations have figured out how to do that at such scale that they raise a lot of money. And I think we much more appreciate the entities that have figured out how to do this with genuine content and genuine engagement and treating people like humans uh, rather than ATMs, right?
0: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, people who work in this space know there's a well-known metric called the churn rate, right? That is expected. Of course, you're going to lose people off of your list. That is, that is something that, People do all the time. And in fact, I get suggestions in my Gmail box that says, hey, you haven't opened this email for 30 days. Do you want to unsubscribe? Right? So that is certainly, um, you know, that's a reality. That being said, I think you always want to be thinking about the fact that this is an opportunity in a primary way in which you can be engaging with folks. And so you should be thinking about a holistic relationship there and not just what do I need right now from this person? Sometimes you do need money. And the reason is easy to explain. If you can explain it to someone and say, this thing just happened, we need to respond immediately. People will get it, but it can't be that message every single time.
1: You spent some time, as I understand it, next at a progressive communications mm-hmm. shop called Fenton. Yeah, What did you learn there?
0: Well, Fenton is actually a very well-known uh, firm in the public affairs communication space on the progressive side. And they had been started by a guy named David Fenton, who was who was also himself a pioneer in using PR effectively to promote causes. I was brought in to um, help build um, the digital practice in, in the d c office. I had a colleague in the New York office as well. and what I learned at Fenton really for the first time was the power of PR and communication strategies when you integrate and layer it in with digital. and i had never I had never seen that in person before where there might be an effort and an initiative that we would be undertaking in the digital space. But I had colleagues on the media team who were pitching a story about said campaign. And it was the first time I really understood how that combination could be incredibly powerful for your ability to reach a ton more people and to do it quickly, effectively, and cheaply.
1: So to this point in your career, you've worked at a series of firms that have had organizations like Planned Parenthood as clients. You've been servicing them as a staff in those organizations. So then you switch over to, to Planned Parenthood for your next job. On the other side, actually working to help an organization do better, you have a huge background now in the digital space from varied roles, uh, learning the tools, learning the consulting around it. Tell me about starting at Planned Parenthood and how that was different and, and what you learned as you built a career there.
0: Well, the reason I joined Planned Parenthood was it was 2011. And uh, what had happened was the Republicans had taken over Congress in the 2010 midterms. And Mike Pence, who was then a congressman from Indiana, um, declared early on and was supported by leadership that he was going to defund Planned Parenthood. That was actually the first big defunding battle for Planned Parenthood. And I was watching all of it unfold, and I was just outraged by it. I was angered, and Planned Parenthood internally uh, did not have a dedicated digital advocacy team. They had an email team, which lived and still does live in the development department, but they had no staff who were digital, who focused on issue advocacy in-house. And so Planned Parenthood won that battle. And coming out of it, there was a recognition that they needed a team of people who could constantly be doing that work, constantly be working with the email team, with colleagues in what was then just called field and with the GR teams who lobby on Planned Parenthood's behalf on Capitol Hill to develop and shape our content strategy, our advocacy strategy, how are we engaging our supporters? That was a needed balance for what was already a very strong health education digital component to what Planned Parenthood was doing. So That's why I was hired to build that first ever team. We subsequently, you know, were involved in um, immediate (laughs) battles. The first or second week I was there, Mississippi agreed to put a personhood ban on the ballot. And this is Mississippi. It's a tough state for reproductive rights and abortion access. And a personhood ban literally bans abortion at the moment of conception. So there is no abortion that would be legal in that scenario. And that happened within two weeks of my starting. And so it was an immediate <laughs> trial by fire for myself and, and Planned Parenthood as an organization and other movement partners to try to defeat that initiative. And shockingly, surprisingly, but maybe not surprisingly, actually, I don't wanna say that, we did beat that ban. And I think what became clear as that campaign played out, not just in the digital space, of course, um, was that when you really educate people about what these bands are about, and what they mean practically for people in their life decisions, they're not popular. <laughs> I don't even remember the exact numbers at this point, um, but we were down maybe eight to 10 points, 10 days out, and we won by double digits. It's
1: amazing. In fact, the entire decade plus that you've been at Planned Parenthood, It's just been a continual battle politically for the organization. And I'm assuming you've been in the middle of that battle from the content standpoint online. What have you learned about what is successful online? What is successful in in terms of fighting these kind of political fights from this lens?
0: The first thing I'll say is the answer really shifts depending on when you're talking about. And that's true for two reasons. One is, what is the broader political environment that we're in? And I will say very clearly that support for safe legal abortion has always been a popular position. But what the other side has done in terms of their strategy of passing these sort of incremental restrictions in the states over the course of the last decade it tends to fly under people's radars a little bit. So number one, while abortion access, right to safe legal abortion has always been popular, I think one of the things that I've learned is that it's critical to center the people who are impacted by these laws. And when you are able to break down what these policies mean for people. That is the most effective way to engage the folks who might be on the fence, might not know where they come down on a particular issue. So I would say that's the the first thing.
1: But let me ask you about that. So who is that? How do you actually operationalize that uh, idea that you just put forward?
0: Well, part of it, sure. Part of it is without question that you're, that you are trying to identify people who are willing to tell their stories, uh, who may have had an abortion in the past, who would not have been able to do that if a particular policy passes. So that's one example of the ways in which you're telling those stories. But what I was actually referring to was that, there are people who believe that abortion should be legal, but maybe with some restrictions and they might hear about a particular restriction that is being put forward. They might say, well, you know, that sounds reasonable. Actually, I, I, you know, that seems,
1: that a girl seems- should have to tell their father,
0: right? <laughs> 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 reasonable, right? Uh, parental consent. Why not? Um, and so the, the way to most effectively counteract those pieces is through the telling of stories. But yes, that's how you operationalize it. So the way I think about any campaign is that you're pulling together a mixture of you know facts, values. So what are the values you're bringing to the campaign? Why does it matter, right? stories and then what can people do about it and so those are the tent poles to me of any successful campaign because different people are moved by different things the average person who may not be paying attention to an issue is not going to be moved by asserting a particular value your your base will your base will like run through walls for the values because they're already there with you. Other people are moved by facts because they might not have been paying attention and not understood the implication of that. The current law in Texas, SB8, is actually a pretty good example of that. Um, But for many people, it is that emotional connection to another human where they are understanding what someone else's experience is That needs to come from that person. That needs to come from a place of authenticity. And when you hear that other person tell the story, it gives you an opportunity as a human to put yourself in that mental space of what someone is going through and how they are experiencing these laws, these policies, or what it would mean for them if a particular uh, bill were to become a law.
1: I feel like I interrupted a part two.
0: Part two actually was just the fact that the, the dramatic shift in 10 years, right, in terms of where's the center of gravity uh, within the technology itself. So when I when I started at, at Planned Parenthood, it was basically Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. MySpace, it was on the downslope, but it was still kind of a thing, right? It still existed. It still had some activity and engagement, Planned Parenthood and MySpace channel, for example. Um, SMS wasn't a thing, really, Uh, just to take some really basic examples. And so now the way in which you run campaigns is just fundamentally different than it was 10 years ago. Having SMS tools, having relational organizing tools at your disposal, the ways in which you can produce video much more quickly and efficiently than you could have in the past, there's more engagement tools and ways that people can take action quickly. Um, And the converse of that is that some of the tools that used to be bread and butter are no longer. And so that's the tricky piece with digital campaigning, which is your go-to moves, you know, two years ago, guess what? They barely yield any outcomes.
1: I mean, do you find yourself on TikTok now?
0: Yes, yes. Both personally, which I never thought I would say, but I am personally on TikTok, not that I'm recording TikToks, but I am kind of scrolling my way through TikTok a little bit every single day. But Planned Parenthood launched, um, we launched our C4 uh, channel in December of last year, and we launched our C3 in March. And we are having a ton of fun experimenting with it, learning from it, and it's certainly becoming a center of gravity within the social networks to the point where I think it was about a week ago, maybe two. There's more view time on TikTok now than YouTube, which is stunning, extraordinary, yeah, extraordinary.
1: I can't help with my background. Ask you, what are the core technology pieces for you now?
0: Well, I, I will, I will clarify that I. <laughs> I work within a very large organization and there are different people who are responsible for different pieces of different tools and different kind of uh, elements of any digital campaign. But for my purposes, I think we find Twitter is still a a pretty valuable tool for, you know, seeing what the zeitgeist is saying, being able to communicate out very quickly and to try to get your narrative kind of playing out. Um, Instagram is still a very much a growth channel for us Um, and so we still utilize it um, pretty heavily because it's a way for us to reach younger folks and a lot of uh, people SMS is critical for I would say it's a more effective direct response channel for us and pretty much across the board if you look at um, if you look at benchmarks uh, within the industry SMS just performs better Uh, And you're able to get more activity out of that from folks. So that's useful. But Facebook is still, you know, Facebook still king, right? You, You see less engagement. We don't post on it as often as we used to, but it is a very versatile platform and everybody is on it. How have things shifted? I think we are, we're doing more on channels like TikTok. We're doing more on, more with new features And places like Instagram, like using reels more and using lives more effectively, we're trying to figure out how do we use Twitter spaces, right? The new conversational tool that they have as a way of expanding our ability to reach that audience. So we're constantly kind of, you know, turning this knob here and turning that knob there to determine where we're going to get the most engagement from our supporters and or that we're able to ensure that whatever the story or the narrative is that we want out in the world uh, is the narrative that is dominating the news cycle.
1: Sounds like you have to keep up with the kids and what they're doing.
0: That is 100% true. I'm so grateful I have such an amazing, incredible, talented team. When we decided to launch TikTok, I have a wonderful social media director. She and I were talking about it. And I said, you know, we should do TikTok. I know we need to be there. And but I I can't script a TikTok because nobody will watch it because it won't make any it will be like if a <laughs> it, would, it would be like the dad version of
1: it has its own lingo and and uh, and. Sort of style that has evolved that people who watch it expect.
0: Well, it would be like a your parent walking into your party with your friends and being like, "Hey, kids, let's you know, let's play checkers."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that would be that would be the equivalent of it. I the one thing I will say about TikTok that really I had a moment where in the past couple of weeks where I was super excited because someone on my team had had put together the draft and I just wanted needed to approve it, and uh, it was using the the trending uh, uh, technique, whatever sound is trending, that you kind of try to hop on that. So more people see your TikTok because you're using a trending sound. And the trending sound was an ABBA song, which is, you know, one of the biggest bands of the 1970s. And my mother was a huge fan of ABBA. So I was like indoctrinated into ABBA as a small child. And I heard. <laughs> So I was Chikatita just for the record, and I heard the Abba song, and I just said, "Well, this is brilliant." And <laughs> I don't know how well it's going to do on TikTok, but the fact that they're even sampling from an Abba song means that TikTok actually sees me, right? Because that's my <laughs> kind of, that's my kind of sound.
1: The progressive space right now is such about coalition not just about organizations working by themselves. To what extent do you, when you're creating content, ever partner with your allies?
0: We partner with our coalition allies all the time. In some cases, it is on specific pieces of content and we have partnerships with them around that. But we are coordinating pretty consistently on, especially when we're in big fights, on what should our overall message be and look like, what are the stories we should be lifting up? How do we collaborate together so that we can ensure that our most powerful stories, our most powerful opportunities for taking action that we're you know, lifting each other up in those moments. It's a real constant um, element and aspect of what we do. And I will say is Planned Parenthood, because we are big and we have a big footprint, we have a responsibility and an obligation to ensure that we're creating space to lift up uh, the voices of some of our partners and to ensure that they are a part of this conversation. And um, and in some cases, it's to educate our supporters about issues that we care about, but they might not be our bread and butter issues, but we have an ability to explain to our supporters why these issues matter, where they intersect with reproductive healthcare and why they should take action on them.
1: It's inevitably and unfortunately an era of Trump that we're inhabiting right now. It's not over. It's been going on for too long and he has really affected the way content and information is promulgated and absorbed. He's changed the world that has got to affect your your job in certain ways. How do you see that? How do you see the misinformation, the, the yelling, the provocativeness, it, which is kind of part of a bigger trend in, in a lot of ways, but also pushing it forward? How does that fit in to your world?
0: Planned Parenthood as an organization, our job, is to make sexual and reproductive health care available to any single person that seeks it out. And guess what? If you are over a certain age, you need sexual and reproductive health care. Our job is care no matter what. That is the core of who we are, regardless of who's in power. If it's Donald Trump, if it's Joe Biden, if it's Barack Obama, we just have to figure out ways to make that happen. And for us, to engage in or to to go down the road of tit for tat or responding in a manner that's Trumpy or I don't even know what the word would be, but that reflects uh, his toxicity would undermine, um, I think, how people view Planned Parenthood, which is our job is to not get sucked into Certainly the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, which helps provide the healthcare through our affiliates, our job is to cut out the noise and do whatever it takes to try to provide people with health care. On the advocacy side, there's no question that the nature of the conversation has become more toxic, but we cannot get sucked into that either. It is our job to lift up what the opposition is doing to us. And sometimes that includes the rhetoric of the other side and the ways in which they are using that rhetoric to attack communities, to attack people's access to basic rights like abortion, like health care, basic health care. But we have to rise above it in a way. That doesn't mean that we don't, show flashes of anger in our um, social advocacy work. Um, I think our president, Alexis McGill Johnson, is excellent at communicating outrage, but doing it in a way that doesn't contribute to the sort of toxic soup that you see so often in the political space.
1: Uh, Heather, you're the kind of person I would like to talk to all day. <laughs> it's, I really have enjoyed this a great deal. Is there a question that I haven't asked that I should have?
0: Well, I've enjoyed this conversation very much. The only thing I, I can think of is is um, really just to be able to name the, um, and I don't know what the question is you would ask, because you're such a good question asker, but we are living in a very perilous time for safe legal abortion with SBA being in effect in Texas for now.
1: I should for sure have asked a question about, like, there is this development triggered by Texas, not struck down by the Supreme Court in opposition to all their precedents, and now being copied in other states, and kind of the looming undoing of Roe v. Wade that is gonna shape our politics now and certainly shape your politics at Planned Parenthood. What are your plans to fight this and to try to survive through this era till the left side regains some power?
0: Correct side. Um, Well, I I appreciate that question. Um, Just to, you know, Be clear about what SB 8 does. The law is SB 8. It passed in Texas in May, and it went into effect without uh, the courts uh, stepping in with an injunction uh, on September 1. Um, Effectively, what it's done is render Roe v. Wade meaningless. And so that uh, is 7 million women of reproductive age in Texas who now do not have their constitutional right to safe legal abortion. It's a six-week ban. There are many other six-week bans that have been passed but not been allowed to go into effect. They have been stopped by the courts. The reason that this was not stopped is because it creates a private right of action, which means the state can't actually enforce the law, but literally any citizen, you don't even have to live in the state of Texas, can sue a provider or anyone who aids and abets A woman uh, who chooses to have an abortion. We call it the Sue Thy Neighbor provision because it essentially creates bounty hunters who can sue in civil court and get up to $10,000 for every action they win against someone who provides or aids in this. So it's an outrageous law. It was designed to circumvent judicial review, which is why it is so far been allowed to remain in effect. The Justice Department sued the state of Texas about a week ago, and that's sort of moving its way through the courts now. So we're hopeful that uh, ultimately this law will be enjoined. But in the meantime, women in the state of Texas have effectively no access. And it's not just because most people don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. Uh, It's also because Texas has other existing laws like a 24-hour waiting period, for example, that just put layer upon layer and restriction upon restriction that make it effectively impossible. So we're trying to do two things. On the healthcare side, we are working with all of our uh, partners There are many independent providers as well as Planned Parenthood in Texas. And we are working with all of them to do whatever we can to ensure that women are able to access abortion In many cases, that means you're traveling to other states. And so over well over 200 miles, I think the average uh, distance you have to travel is now almost 300 miles in order to obtain a safe uh, legal abortion. And one other note on that, which is um, as part of that, and this is something we're actually asking our supporters to do, we're asking folks to give to local abortion funds. And so uh, there's a way that people can do that. And that provides the funding needed so that women who need to travel out of state have the resources to do that. Now, whether they can take time off if they need childcare, those are other logistical hurdles and barriers that are tremendously challenging for many women. At minimum, we're trying to assist however we can with connecting people with other providers and uh, with making sure abortion funds have the resources they need to help these women. On the political side, we are actually holding a a series of marches across the country in a couple of weeks on October 2nd. There's going to be a a relatively large one in D.C. and uh, in Austin, Texas, and really anywhere anyone is wanting to stand up and start fighting back against this. But I think your broader point is correct that We're still facing a regular Supreme Court case, Jackson Women's Health Organization, which will be heard probably late this year. The ruling on that will probably come in June. The threat that Roe will uh, either be explicitly overturned or rendered meaningless for all intents and purposes is very grave. You actually mentioned copycat laws. Well, some states may move quickly to Pass copycat laws, literally within this calendar year, that probably not going to be a ton of movement there. But in January, when every state legislature comes back into session, we anticipate there's going to be a lot of activity because the other side feels emboldened. So politically, what we need to do is we need to mobilize right now, and we need to try to be in a position to beat back some of these state legislative attempts to ban abortion or severely restrict abortion that are going to be coming up in the next several months. And then we need to be turning out in the fall. That is something that Planned Parenthood Votes and Planned Parenthood Action Fund will be doing in their capacity to do political work. Uh, And obviously, there are many, many others on the progressive side who recognize this as a political opportunity. Because 80% of Americans support safe legal abortion and what's happening in Texas. And now that we have a glimpse of what it looks like to be in a state that effectively does not have safe legal abortion, we're hopeful that we'll uh, be able to use that effectively.
1: So it sounds very much to me like you can get away with barely doing anything in your job for a while.
0: It's gonna be very quiet. Fall, very quiet. <laughs> yes.
1: Are there any things that you do uh, outside of Planned Parenthood, outside of your work, that you would like to highlight? Other extracurriculars that are relevant to to the space?
0: No, oh, I'm very boring. I have a child. Uh, we have a trampoline. I'm getting <laughs> good at doing. Um... <laughs> I can do like jumping, they're not jumping splits. I don't know. I can do a jump split situation on the trampoline. I'm, that's, I'm proud of that. Uh, but I no. don't believe
1: there's anything called a jump split, but
0: I don't know what it is. I can do yeah. it, but I don't know what it, I'm glad this is not on video. Uh,
1: otherwise but, you'd be demonstra- having to no, demonstrate, right?
0: <laughs> no. But no, I, you know, I, you know, we're, we're all, I think many of us in the middle of pandemic in the midst of the pandemic have really just tried to find means to stay sane and yeah. healthy and hunker down, hunker down. I've been, I've been, I've been doing that, but, um, nothing that's super relevant to digital. In fact, it's the opposite of digital, right? I mean, I appreciate, uh, being able to get offline and be out in nature or cook and not, you know, kind of be IRL as they say. <laughs>
1: Well, Heather, uh, quite an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, thank you for the opportunity. And, um, this was a really wonderful conversation. So thank you.
1: That was Heather Holdridge. Heather is at plannedparenthood.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.